You know, sometimes we allow things into our lives that shouldn't be there, and we need to kind of clean house and kind of restore ourselves to where we should be. And for, and for some, other, some of you who don't know about my story, uh, when I was 26 years old, I started having kind of debilitating pain in my hip, and it was discovered I had hip dysplasia. And it was to the point where at the prime of my life, I was on a cane, on crutches, and, and just trying to hobble around. And so when I was 27, they did a surgery. It's called a tri- triple osteotomy. So they cut my, my uh, pelvis in three places, rotated it, put two pins in me, and then put me in a body cast from my chest to my ankles and sent me home. And in the process of this, as you can imagine, the surgery and the body cast and trying to healing was, was painful, and it was uh, very, very uncomfortable. And somewhere along the line of this process, uh, I developed nerve damage in my perineal nerve. And so it's something I deal with to this day, but it was extremely painful at this point. And to the point where they finally removed the cast, and I started going through these lumbar blocks. They were giving me heavy doses of morphine, a Vicodin, and a Percocet. And at the time, I didn't think much about it. I just wanted the pain to stop. I just wanted it to end. But there became this distinct moment where I knew I had an issue, where I knew I had a problem. And I wish this was a much better story and I'm just sharing this, and this, you're going to keep this between us, okay? So I just want you to, <clears throat> I haven't told many people this. But so I was, there was this moment, I was sitting in my living room, and I was in a wheelchair because my legs had atrophied so much, and I had to kind of learn how to walk again. And I was sitting in the middle of our living room in a wheelchair watching the Winter Olympics. And I love the Olympics. I mean, the competition, you know, the, the stories, people kind of rising up. I mean, I, lo- I could watch, you sit there in front of TV for two weeks and watch it all. And so this was a Winter Olympics, and this particular night they had some downhill skiing, some ski jumping, and then they had ice skating. Now, I'm not a big ice skating fan. I'll watch it about once every four years when the Olympics are on. But this particular night, you know those backstories they do uh, of some of the competitors? So this was one where they were interviewing this individual, and they, I think they're from an Eastern Bloc country, and they kind of grew up ice skating, were starting competing when they were young, but somewhere when they're out in the woods one day, they had a tragic accident that, that really kind of debilitated their leg. And there's stories about how they fought, and how they competed, and how they rehabilitated, and they finally got to a point where they could compete again, not just that, compete in the Olympics. And so then they fade from that scene onto the scene where they're on the ice. You know how they do that? And they're sitting there. And this is where I knew I had an issue. Because I was sitting alone in my living room in a wheelchair crying. And I'm just not talking about a little tear coming down my cheek. I was bawling. If you want to know where rock bottom is, it's when you're crying while you're watching ice skating. (laughs) I mean, that's it. If you ever want to know where that line is, that's it. Because I'm a big guy, and I don't cry a lot, and you don't ever want to see me on ice. But I sat there going, man, what is wrong with me? But what had happened is I'd allowed these, these drugs into my life, and it was changing the way I thought, the way my emotions, and the way I functioned. And I knew I needed to make a change. You know, and all too often in times of our lives, we allow things in unknowingly or sometimes innocently, but there are times we need to clean house of our emotions, of our spirit, of our mental 
even a physical, you know, that weekend you spend, you know, out or vacation where you don't eat well, you know, it's time to kind of clean house a little bit when you get home. And that's kind of what we're going to look at this morning as we're going to continue on with this uh, series that we're going on through that Scott's taking us through and called So That You Believe. And we're talking about John 2 this morning in this wild scene where Jesus clears the temple. So we're going to look at John 2, 13 through 22. It says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple, and he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip out of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Notice these are the, the, the priests, and they don't even ask him to get out. They just say, well, whoa, What sign do you have to do this? was their response. And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it in three days? <clears throat> but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now there's a lot of background just in this one passage that, that I, I love context, I love history that I could delve into, but I need to give you the Cliff Notes version this morning of just what's pertinent to what we're talking about here. <clears throat> so the temple was built by King Solomon, and when it was built... It was one of the most amazing structures on the face of the earth. When he built it, it was the most extravagant, most exquisite, most precise building ever made. But through the course of time, it had been destroyed. The walls had been knocked down. It had been fixed up. It had been abandoned. Where they were right now was that Herod, who was the ruler of the time, the Roman ruler, was restoring the temple. And they were 47 years into that restoration, was what you read. And, and Herod was trying to restore it back to the Solomon glory. And he was trying to please the Jews because the Jews didn't like him very much. So what better way to make them happy than to rebuild their temple? So that's kind of where they were in this situation. And the scene that Jesus walks into is the, the temple had a courtyard area. So you come into a gate and there's a courtyard area that, almost, that um, any Jew could come into. Then there's another gate and you walked into another section where the sacrifices were made. Well, what had happened to, to kind of ease the burden, because during Passover, all the Jews were not required, but highly suggested that you come to the temple to offer your sacrifices. So they had to come into the courts, and to make it easier on them, what they had done is they set up these booths in the temple courtyard to, to want to exchange money, because you had to pay your temple tax, which could only be paid in a certain coinage. So whatever money you brought, you had to change it for what was called a Mishnah, and that was how you paid your temple tax. And the other thing you needed was a sacrifice. So depending upon your family, your status, you needed to bring a sacrifice. So instead of like bringing one with you from wherever you came from, you, they had them offered there. So the, the thing you have to understand was the courtyard was never built for this. So the courtyard was a place of preparation to go into the sacrifice. But now it looked like the farmer's market on elk on a Sunday. I mean, it was just booths set up all around, people selling stuff. And this is what Jesus walked into. And he got a little upset. 
to the point where he, he made a whip of cord, made a cord out of whips, or whips out of cord, I guess, and started driving them out. Now, the important thing to understand is he didn't disagree with this practice. Jesus paid the temple tax, and we needed sacrifices. It was the fact that this was happening in the temple. And that's what he was trying to, to change and try to drive out. Now, it's important to understand that all throughout Jesus' ministry, we never see him react this way. Even though he was betrayed, even though people were trying to trap him, even though his disciples never understood what he was talking about, even when he was nailed on a cross, he didn't show much emotion when it came to him. He didn't try to protect himself. He didn't try to defend himself. And think about all the times we try to defend our own actions. But when it came to the temple, when it came to the Father's house, that's where he got livid. That's where he showed a righteous anger to protect what was holy. And that's what you need to understand about this little passage here. And so with this understanding, that there's several questions we need to ask ourselves in understanding this. And the first is, why should we protect what is holy? I mean, Jesus went through uh, uh, a lot to drive the people out of the temple. And it, scholars actually think he did this twice. In John, it's actually shown a little earlier than the other three Gospels. Some people think John got it out of chronological order. But others think that Jesus did this twice, that he drove the people out of the, the, the courtyard twice. So why was he so passionate about this? Why do we need to protect what is holy in our lives? <clears throat> If we take this um, question back, it's this balance between a God that has an innate need to be worshipped and our desire to facilitate that worship and what that looks like. And for what you have to realize is that the, the temple at its time was the holiest place on earth. God dwelled in the temple, yet it was corrupt. Yet it even lost its way. So if the temple, the holiest place on earth, loses its way, how much more will we? And even take that into modern churches. If Jesus came into a modern church, would he make a whip? Would he start flipping over espresso machines and drum sets and video projectors? I don't have the answer to that. I think it's a good question to ask and something for another day. But beyond the church, if we look in our own lives, why should we protect what is holy in our own lives? Well, In 1 Peter 2.9 Peter tells us about ourselves. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own passion, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into the marvelous light. We are holy beings created by a holy God for a holy purpose. And if we're not protecting what is holy in our lives, who is? There are too many competing priorities and distractions in our lives not to protecting what is holy in our lives. That's what we need to understand. And I hear people talk a lot about time, well, I'm just kind of maintaining. Well, life in Christ isn't a maintaining. It's, it's a pursuit uphill to God. Because if you're not pursuing God, you're falling into the darkness. You're being attracted by the light. There's too many things out there to pull you down if you're not constantly moving. It's just like working out. I could go to the gym and just sit there and watch other people work out, but it's not going to change my body. I tried. It doesn't work. 
It's just like church, when you come in, it's not a spectator sport. You have to participate in what is holy and protecting what's in your life. <clears throat> so the second question we need to ask, if, we, if this is important and we have to protect what is holy, then how do we lose our way? How did we lose? How did the temple, the holiest place on earth, become a place of commerce? And I think this is a two-part answer. And the first is about succumbing to the darkness. Because think about the fact that the temple was the holiest place on earth. Only the high priest could enter the holies of holies, which is behind the curtain. He could only do it once a year. And, and it was so dangerous, they had to tie a rope around the guy and put a bell on him. Because if he didn't purify himself right, if he didn't have the right sacrifice, if he didn't go through all these steps correctly, man, he was dead on the spot. Once that bell stopped ringing, they got the rope and pulled him out because no one else could go in there. The high priest and the priest would have known this. This would have been very real to them, yet it wasn't enough to stop them from prostituting the courtyard for financial gain. We lose our way. And the important thing you have to understand is the darkness the money changers, it didn't come on slowly. I mean, it didn't come on quickly. It came on slowly. It wasn't an overnight process. So to understand this a little better, I'm going to get some volunteers. Are you six? Come up here. Just stand up in a row. Y'all know how to sing, right? No, I'm just kidding. So if we take this into... Yeah. So in the temple you had, um, and really you're just going to hold stuff, so don't worry. You can, you had oxen, you had money changers, you had sheep that were being sold. I don't, I don't know if they had donkeys, I just wanted my son to hold this up here. So. <laughs> you had pigeons, and then another was flour and oil, depending upon your sacrifice. Again, there's nothing wrong with these things, it's the fact that they're being sold in the temple. In the house of God. So if you flip them around, let's take them into modern times. What if you come into the church, a place of worship, and you got a bunch of booths out front where they're selling workbooks or books or coffee, donuts, CDs or T-shirts? Again, there's nothing wrong with these things, except maybe donuts. But at the bare minimum, if you're coming into the house to worship God, what are they? Distractions. They are distractions. So let's take this one step further into our own lives and the things we convince ourselves of. Hey, you know, no one will know. It's just a couple of pins from the office. What's the big deal? Oh, here the dog ate my homework. That little one? Yeah, it's just a little white lie. What harm's it going to do? What about those off-color jokes or movies? Or music. What about stuff? I don't need this, but I got to have it because I got to keep up with the Joneses because they got the nicest stuff. What about the gossip? Oh, did you hear about so-and-so? Oh, let's talk about it. Or sex, drugs, alcohol, porn. When we open the courtyard, open the gate to the courtyard of our heart, we let the darkness in. Now, let me tell you, we can justify any of this. Oh, it's not that bad. Who's it going to hurt? It's just one time. And let me tell you, when you get to the point of having to justify your actions, you've let the darkness in. 
Notice Jesus never had to justify or defend his actions because he was looking to what is holy. All right, you can sit down. You can just keep those. (laughs) But, But that's the main reason we constantly need to be in protection mode of our lives. Because if we're not protecting what is holy, if we're not constantly trying to keep that gate shut, then the money changes are coming into our own lives. And the darkness is coming in, and we're missing what is important and holy in our lives. Which brings us to the second point. The first is that darkness. The second is what you talked about, the distractions in our lives. What are we distracted with in our lives right now? I mean, not you. I know you are focused in on me right now, right? But what are other people distracted with in their lives? Work, school, money, what? Life, (laughs) recreation, taxes, death. (laughs) We are an extremely distracted society. And and I want to share a few statistics with you. The studies have shown that the typical social media user consumes 285 pieces of content daily, which equates to just in social media terms, 54,000 words a day and 1,000 clickable links. They say that um, because we're bombarded with an equivalent of 174 newspapers of data a day, the growth of the Internet, 24-hour television, my mobile phones mean that in today's term, we receive five times the amount of information that we did back in 1986. Five times. Our brains, let alone, we don't want to admit it, haven't evolved that quickly. We can't consume that much information. So what's happening is we don't know what to choose. We don't know what to seek. And so we're getting bombarded with all these distractions of information in our lives. You know, over the past couple of years, as I've had the opportunity to talk to more people, and I've talked more openly about my own pain and struggles in life, I've entered into a lot of conversations. And a lot of these conversations, you know, they start with physical pain, but I started noticing this undercurrent with these people. I started noticing that we're an extremely distracted society because we're so tightly wound by the stresses of life, of all the distractions you just talked about, that we can function in that area. But when something like pain, divorce, job loss comes in, we lose it. We can't cope. And what's happening is these stresses and these, these anxieties and depression and suicide, they're taking us away from a focus because they're taking us away from the peace that passes all understanding. And that distraction is causing a void in our life because we have so much information coming to us, we're trying to drink out of a fire hose and we don't know where to get our water. We have to be cognizant of that fact. If you've ever read <clears throat> The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, the whole book is about a senior devil named Screwtape who's trying to train up his um, nephew, Wormwood, in ways to distract Christians. Because if he can just get you to focus on pleasure or social justice or that your Christianity is something other than Christ, then they've done their job. It's a brilliant ruse. Because the devil doesn't have to make you into an evil warmonger. He just has to distract you. And he's doing a fantastic job right now of just distracting us from what's important in our lives and keeping our focus on Christ and Christ alone. Which brings us to our last question. 
is that how can we protect our sacred places? And there's three things I want to talk about in order to protect our sacred places. But before I get to that, I kind of want to give you an overarching thought to marinate on. So Jesus Christ, remember, comes into the temple, makes a whip. And you all know how to do that, right, everyone here? That's part of, the, that's part of Christianity 101, isn't it, how to make a whip? But he makes a whip, flips over tables, and drives people out of the temple. Now, the temple is where God resided. And when Jesus died on the cross, the temple the curtain in the temple tore from top to bottom. And the reason was is God would no longer dwell in the temple. But with Christ's death and resurrection, his spirit would dwell in us. In 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20, Paul tells the church at Corinth, it says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with the price. So glorify God in your body. We are the temple. Which means, what have we let our door open to in the courtyard of our lives? But remember, no matter who you are, or if you struggle with the fact of your purpose, of your existence, of who you are in Christ, remember that Christ is more than ready to open a whip and drive people out of the temple, and so he is with your own life. He's more than ready to drive the evil out of your own heart because that's the passion. That's the ruthless pursuit he has of you as of the temple. And you've got to keep that in your head and remember that peace. And remembering that, the, the first thing we need to do is we need motivation. We need to find out what our motivation is in pursuing that which is holy. Because if, we, if we're honest with ourselves, we're not motivated enough. <clears throat> I mean, I live in America. I've got a good house. I'm comfortable, I get fed every day, I got heat, I got, well, it's cool here all the time, so it doesn't, I don't need cool, but I'm comfortable. I don't suffer enough to be motivated to need Christ, and that's an issue in our lives and in our churches as well, because <clears throat> I've seen over, and, and being a pastor for many years doing counseling, and I, I run a, a camp for the last 10 years for boys and girls who lost their fathers in military service, I've dealt a lot with pain, especially in young people. And even over the last year or so, I've had a lot of parents come to me and talk to me about their teenagers. And their teenagers, they're from good homes, they're going to good churches, and they're struggling. They're dealing with sex, they're dealing with alcohol, they're dealing with drug abuse, they're dealing with homosexuality, they're dealing with cutting themselves, and they don't know what to do. And what I'm seeing in our culture right now is our youth are so pressured to go the way of the world that they're not understanding the motivation to follow Christ. What they're hearing at church and what they're hearing at home isn't strong enough to battle what they're hearing in the world. And man, that's on us. That's on the church for not being clear about its message and raising kids up. It's on us as parents that we're not showing what the life in Christ looks like. And they're struggling. Because think about all that information I talked about that's coming at them you know, I was actually alive in 1986. I was a teenager, so I know what it's like not to have something in my hands all the time. They don't. They're bombarded with that information. But let me tell you, if you all band together and you trust each other and you build each other up as holy, you're going to change this town. And if you change this town, God only knows what's going to change after that. Because that's what we call revival. 
But you have to realize and you have to pursue that motivation in your life of what is more holy than what the world tells you. Because the world is just trying to tell you, do things our ways because I don't know if it's right or not, but if I get more people involved, then then it must be okay. But you pursue what is holy, you're never going to miss the mark. You know, if you look at Proverbs 4, 14 and um, 23, I mean, it's very clear. He just talks about don't do as a wicked do. Don't follow the path. Don't even think about it. Don't even get it in your head. But 4.23, it says up there, keep your heart with all diligence or guard your heart. For it's the wellspring of your life. And it can't be any clearer than that because wherever your heart is, there your eyes and your feet will be shortly after. We have to concentrate on what is holy. So the question I ask for you is what's motivating you? And it's something I struggle with. Am I motivated enough to go in a place and flip over some tables for what's righteous and holy? I don't know. But we have to find out what's motivating us to pursue God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And once we find that motivation, then we can begin reformation, which is the next one. And this is what Jesus was trying to do in the temple. He was trying to reform it. He was trying to clear it out in order to reform it back to what it was originally caused to be. But now that Christ lives in us, we need to reform our own temple and keep the courtyard clean. Paul, in his letter to the church at Philippi in Philippians 4.8, he says, Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Put your mind on what is good, holy, righteous, instead of what's not. This is a daily thing we need to be doing. You know, we just don't come to God and go, yay. It's a daily taking up your cross to follow him. Or else you're going to be swayed. If you don't believe me, just read Judges. If you've read Judges, I think every chapter starts with, and the Israelites did what? Sin, evil. (laughs) It was this constant like, yay, God. Oh, look, there's other gods. Let's go follow them. Oh, wait, we're being oppressed and beaten. God, where are you? Okay, let's go back to God. It's like that's all the book is. We're constantly being distracted again by what the the shiny objects of this world look like. And which is it's going to take our own life in order to reform that light and, and, and concentrate on the marvelous light that is Christ by filling our heads with, with that good, lovely stuff instead of what the evil is and keep that out. And last, we need to find, after motivation and reformation, begin the transformation. And this is beginning becoming the person that God created us to be, becoming the person that Christ flipped over the, t- the tables for and the person that he died on the cross for. Transformation is the reason we come to Christ. It's the reason we pray. It's the reason we, we come out of the darkness into the marvelous light. It's getting, instead of getting sidelined, because our, our biggest issue, our biggest challenge to transformation is the darkness, is the distractions. You know, Romans 12, 2 says, you know, do not conform any longer to what? The world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind by focusing on that which is good, which is righteous, which is light. Because this is a, our act of worship. This is what God called us to. But we, we 
miss that by not concentrating on those things which transform us. And we've, we've, we've so kind of softened up Christ, we miss the radical individual he is. I mean, he was a crazy individual to follow. His disciples were constantly confused. There's one archbishop that said, you know, everywhere that uh, Christ went, there was a riot. Everywhere I go, they make me cups of tea. And that's the softening that we made. But if you choose to follow Christ, you're, chosen, you're choosing to follow a whip-yielding, table-flipping, socially marginal, in-your-face offensive individual who loves you with all his heart. Your life may be many things in following Christ, but boring will not be one of them. But we have to choose to live a life that's cleansing of the temple so that we can focus on what is holy. As the band comes up, I kind of want to leave you with a, <clears throat> with a thought here. You know, it, it's kind of your Monday morning factor. You know, what does this mean when you leave here today? What does this mean for the rest of your week? And the, the challenge is, is when you leave this building for the next six and a half days, you're going to hear something completely contrary to what you hear here. Because that, that 100,000 words you get a day, all those messages you get, let's face it, with social media, news, and politics, it's not very positive, is it? So my challenge for you is, one, what are you going to do to cleanse the courtyard of your life of the money changers. Then what are you going to do to protect what is holy? Let's pray. Lord God, we just, uh, we come before you in awe of what you've done for us, of what you created us to be and who you see us to be in your eyes. And Lord, I just uh, pray that we could come before you, Lord, and, and take a true and honest look into our lives, into our heart, and find out what's dark in there, find out what's keeping us from you, so that we can cleanse it out and fill it with the marvelous light that is you. I just thank you for the people that are here. I, I pray over them, and I pray that, that your covering would just follow them throughout this week, God, as they could seek to find that true light that can only be found. Let's pray these things in Jesus' name.